नमस्ते एंड वेलकम टू दिस न्यू एडिशन ऑफ द भारतवाद पॉडकास्ट टुडे वी हैव ऑट विथ हा संजीव सान्याल हु इज अ प्रिंसिपल इकोनॉमिक एडवाइजर टू द गवर्नमेंट ऑफ इंडिया संजीव थैंक यू फॉर योर टाइम एंड जॉइनिंग अस फॉर भारतवाद टुडे नमस्कार इट्स रियली एक्साइटिंग टू हैव संजीव टू टॉक अबाउट द स्टेट ऑफ द इंडियन इकोनॉमी एंड इन द नेक्स्ट फ्यू मिनट्स वी विल कवर हिज व्यूज ऑन वेयर वी आर हेडेड and the impact of the pandemic on the economic position this financial year and in the coming times so sanjeev let me start off by asking you uh, how do you see the indian economy currently and the shaping of this financial year so i think we need to take a quick background because um, as you know um, the last uh, one and a half years have been uh, unusual to say the least um, <clears throat> obviously we went through a major uh, first wave and a lockdown uh, last year between uh, end of march and uh, into maybe as as much as july and then slowly easing it up through to september and that uh, caused all kinds of disruptions in the economy it was a full lockdown um in many ways we were not prepared for the many intricacies of uh, dealing with the um pandemic at that time and you know so that time was what was used up to create at least some quarantine facilities ppe kits and all those kinds of things that was when the vaccination research started so it was critical time but as far as the economy is concerned it was locked down i mean we didn't have a choice about doing that lockdown but we have to recognize there was an economic price to be paid about it but once we began to open things up uh, starting around october Uh, we saw two things one is that the consumer came back uh, quite aggressively in fact uh, and importantly we also saw uh, you know a lot of government uh, capital expenditure which was very sharply ramped up a lot of government payments were made so there's liquidity in the system and of course the various measures that were announced uh, from uh, you know a large scale food program uh, the world's largest with you know food for 800 million people Uh, there were gu- uh, guarantee schemes uh, uh, for credit uh, for the MSMEs and so on. And basically, what we found is that um, what could have been quite a you know spiral downwards was more than arrested. And by you could see that by the January to March quarter, the economy was actually recovering very strongly. Unfortunately, April and May then got hit by the second speed bump, which was quite vicious uh, as far as the health situation was concerned. we had this huge uh, second wave uh, it was very very disruptive uh, in multiple ways um of course from a health perspective uh, it was in a completely different level from the first wave um in terms of the you know number of infections uh, the number of uh, deaths and so on um <clears throat> and no doubt um, you know uh, we ha- we had now come off very significantly we are now back to uh, you know we are far below even the peak of the first wave but nevertheless uh, we have to recognize that this was a major speed bump uh, the question then is what are the uh, what is the economic momentum looking like right now ie having had this reacceleration very strong one and then going into the disruptions caused by the second wave now first of all we didn't have a national lockdown so in that sense um this was not uh, quite in the same level from a economic perspective as disruptive as a, uh, so on the health front it was worse but on the economic front uh, uh, that was uh, it was not quite as tight a lockdown in any case 
having gone through the first round, people were much more used to uh, what was needed to go through. So that was uh, uh, so that was good. Um, we also had uh, certain parts of the economy actually doing rather strongly because um, you had, for example, exports gathering momentum because the rest of the world is going through its unlocking as well. Uh, you also had a situation where certain parts of the econ uh, parts of the country were kept open, and so you did have these rolling lockouts across the country, but at different points in time, different parts of the country were functioning reasonably well. So that was good. And there are certain sectors that were doing reasonably well. For example, construction continued to do, in fact, if anything, you know, steel prices and cement prices began to creep up. So there were large parts of the economy that actually continued to function rather well through the second wave and did not lose momentum. That's important to remember. It is also important to remember that there were other parts of the economy that did get effective just as much. For example, hotels, hospitality, restaurants, and so on. They were shut down yet again. And remember, they have gone through this once before. So in that sense, they, you know, cash flows and other things are already impaired and they have to go through this one more time. So that is on the other side, they were paired. But I think if you look at only from a year on year perspective, you'll see the growth rates will be reasonably good. Not as good as what may have been if you didn't have the second round, but the momentum has not been entirely lost. But going looking forward, what are, what, what are the pros and cons? Now, on the pros, you have, I think, export looking reasonably good still. So I think that is going to be a good thing. As I said, a lot of the momentum that was there in certain sectors like construction, infrastructure, etc., that remains strong. Um, since we had already gone through some of the measures needed during the first round, we knew um, many of the things we needed to do. So, for example, the food program was extended. We extended some of the uh, credit guarantee systems and so on. So some of the sort of cushioning things we need to do on the economic front, we already knew what to do and we plus them. On the other hand, now we have gone through a second wave. So there are other things that are different this time uh, as well. First of all, we are not and we can't be sure that the middle class will come back and spend again in the same way they did in the past of the first lockdown. For the simplest reason, uh, you know, in the first round, the middle class kind of saw it as a, uh, you know, a, a, a forced holiday. Uh, you will remember, you know, people were posting photographs of their cooking, their Delgano coffee and all, all that kind of thing. I think the second round has been much more closer to home. People have lost um, near and dear ones. Um, even those who have not been personally affected will certainly know of somebody who has been personally affected. So in that sense, the mood is um, is uh, much more somber and it's difficult to tell psychologically what the impact of that will be. Um, you know, there will be an opening up and people will come back to some extent, but to what extent that, that uh, pent up demand will follow through, um, we need to be watched. It's very, you can't predict it. We need to watch this and there's something we, we have to be concerned about. Secondly, um, there is the issue of inflation. Now, prices did spike up the last time as well because of supply side uh, disruptions. But if you remember what I was saying at that time, we were not concerned about in inflation uh, substantially last time because it's quite obvious that demand was not, you know, uh, demand uh, was, not a, uh, was not the problem. You know, they had caused a temporary um, supply side breakdown. That supply side was opened up and inflation did indeed come down. Now what you have is a more complicated uh, picture because first of all, there is inflation globally coming back. So that is something you need to take uh, into account. 
energy prices have spiked up very significantly and um, see so unlike in the last in the first phase where oil prices crashed uh, here oil prices have actually gone up um, and of course there is the repeated breakdowns of various things that have ha happened and we need to see what has happened to the supply side is this a permanent scarring of various bits and pieces of the supply side or is it the case that this once we open up it will all go back so uh, for the first time in many many years worldwide we need to watch inflation um i'm not saying that this is going to go into a spiral just yet it may well be that it'll all kind of ease things up um you know and uh, maybe iran oil coming back on stream etc will temper things so i'm not sort of beginning to press the red button yet but i do think that unlike the first time where i was completely sanguine about um the 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 uh, inflation situation uh, i will in this round watch it quite carefully right thanks anjeev that was very comprehensive uh, in terms of how the picture has evolved between last year and this year uh so most of the agencies have reduced the gdp growth forecast right they they talked about 12 13% and now the estimates are between 8 and 10 11% depending on which agency are we talking about so uh do you see that i mean uh, is is that a reasonable uh, uh, guess to say that the the, the there'll be a reduction in the gdp this gdp growth this year so gdp growth rate was uh, in our budget if you remember we put a very conservative number of 10 and a half which was well below what other people were forecasting and even in the economic survey i think it was a little above 11% so the point is that we already had somewhat more conservative numbers than many of the others now so of course we will have to watch what happens about the uh, you know the revival path that we will now see um but i think the the government's numbers will not have to be revised quite so much as many of the others which were much more optimistic than ours um so in that sense uh, we we will probably not need to reduce very much but yes we something we need to watch i mean that you cannot deny that there was a second wave and it was disruptive right so uh, sanjeev one uh, data point you spoke about was a trade data uh, we have seen a 30 billion plus trade since march for three months even the first week of june was pretty strong at 7.71 billion uh, i think historically india has had only had four or five months of trade ever which which crossed 30 billion and now we have had three months in a row and potentially a fourth month as well so are things actually turning a corner on trade or more this is more like a global pent up demand uh, and these uh, which is kind of causing this blip so there's no question that global demand has come back very strongly we are benefiting from that uh no doubt about it and uh, also there is the fact that you know global supply chains are slowly re um, so redeveloping themselves so to speak for a new geopolitical environment and, and so we have seen many things for example the uh, you know very strong fdi numbers that we have been seeing for quite some time by the way the numbers you are speaking about are only the merchandise numbers even yes. the services trade has also been very strong so both services and uh, merchandise trade has been strong uh, as i said part of it is because of geopolitical reorientation there is china plus 1 and all these kinds of factors uh, there is the redevelopment uh, reemergence of global demand which has been has come out quite strongly 
Um, there is FDI flows, which means that we are slowly but steadily becoming much more integrated in global supply chains, which we were not. So there are multiple uh, factors. The question is, will it be sustained? Now, the global demand reinflation will go on for a little while longer. But of course, um, very difficult to, to, to predict how that will pan out. I think the redistribution and reorientation of global supply chains may be a longer term and more reliable dynamic. And that is there now in the thinking of most global companies. It, I mean, and you saw that even in the G7 communiques and so on. Um, there is now even a new uh, US-led initiative to have a uh, Belt and Road initiative from the US. So you can clearly see the reorientation. And yes, uh, you know, as part of that, we hope to take advantage of it. Obviously, we cannot, uh, it will not happen naturally. We have to actively go out there and participate in it. But we are cognizant of the opportunity. And of course, this is what the PLI scheme is all about. Um, this is, you know, explicitly to take advantage of new emerging uh, systems. The other good thing that we need to take advantage of, and we have to be conscious about doing this, is to take advantage of the fact that we now are finally, thanks to GST, a common market internally. We were never a large common market, and therefore we could never take advantage of global scales or, uh, by taking advantage of our home market. We can now do this. <clears throat> and so this is an actually an important uh, aspect of the global uh, supply chain that we can now finally take advantage of, and we should take advantage of it. Um, and I think uh, there are other factors as well. For example, we need to be able to both uh, push for open trade, both at the WTO, but also at our own level through making deals with, um, uh, uh, you know, with uh, large markets. Um, you know, very often uh, people look at our uh, reluctance to join RCEP as some sort of a reluctance to uh, participate in global uh, trading blocks. That is actually wrong. Uh, we did not participate in RCEP because it did not work for us. It didn't. It wasn't in our national interest. It was not an ideological problem with joining trading blocks. We recognize that India's you know future lies in being a serious participant in global trade and being a part participant in global supply chains. It just was that particular trade deal didn't work for us. That does not mean that we will not explore explore trade deals with other large markets. Right. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you spoke about PLIs. When, when we did it last year, there was a lot of commentary on how this is protectionist. But somehow the U.S. itself is now saying speaking speaking the same language, right? In the last week, President Biden spoke about supply chain rebalancing. So it's good that, in some ways, that thought is now a more globally accepted thought and not just limited to India. Uh, so uh, Sanjeev, you spoke about GST and the internal market. We will soon be completing four years of GST, I think, in in about two weeks from now. So. What is the thought process on the evolution of GST? Uh, has it served its purpose? What changes do we need further? How do we make it better? So uh, what was the purpose of GST? One was to simply create a large internal market. You know, we had an absurd situation in India where it was actually easier for Mumbai to trade with Shanghai than for Mumbai to trade with Delhi. Now, I think that has changed. And I think four years later, even its detractors will agree that the system, while it may not be perfect, is certainly a huge improvement in whatever used to exist before. 
I think that is now widely accepted. There were many glitches along the way, but frankly, the only way to have done it was to do it and then fix the glitches. And I think the system is, yeah, as I said, I'm not claiming that it's perfect, but it's certainly far less glitchy than it ever was before. Uh, you know, all the rent seeking and other things that was, used to happen at every step earlier that has gone. Many of the misuses of the uh, system initially have also been worked out and uh, and taken up. So we have now a workable system, which means that as and when the economy eventually opens up and grows, revenues will certainly become very closely buoyant with it. And we got a taste of that in the April numbers, which were basically for the March transactions. So if the economy grows, this system is capable of picking up the revenue. Now, that is a huge progress, which is basically you have now got a system that is, you know, built in buoyancy. Now you can focus on just growing the economy and this thing will do the job. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't fix it. There are all kinds of problems still with it. My own view is that it should be much simpler. Uh, we should try and have as many things as possible in one central rate somewhere. Uh, and I think that is something we will ultimately have to move towards. Um, and I'm not a big votary that, you know, this whole revenue neutral rate argument, that may be a reasonable and meaningful argument during the transition period. But now we should abandon that and begin to think about what is the most efficient rate. And I think that we need to think in a blue sky way. My guess it would be somewhere in the 15% range. And we should move most things to it. But, um, you know, at what rate you do it and when you do it is a matter of judgment, um, whether or not you should be doing it at a time uh, where anyway, there are so many things, so many moving parts that maybe it may be worthwhile leaving the current system to chug along for a little while because everybody, at least for now, is used to it. And the, But at some point, we've got to simplify it and have a system where most things run on one. I'm not saying we'll have only one rate. That may not be possible. But certainly the central rate could be the dominant rate on which now, as I said, we may not be able, we, we, I would not uh, be in favor of making too many changes right now in the middle of a pandemic and various other things, but this should be our ultimate target. Right. Yep. So uh, Sanjeev, we have a uh, situation where a lot of the short-term data looks good. Like GS, for example, I think we have had eight months of one lakh crore plus collections and of course growth over the previous period. Uh, exports is, uh, have been good. Consumption was strong in Q1. But on the other hand, we have had uh, reports of about 200 million people sliding down the poverty uh, line. Uh, several, several lakhs of businesses getting closed as per various media reports. I mean, the numbers are yet to be kind of fully tallied, but looks like it's a severe impact on, on a part of the economy. So what is needed to support that vulnerable part, which is uh, not participating or not, not going to participate as economy opens up back in the growth story? So my thing is that first and foremost, you've got to get the economy going and not take your eye off this, uh, uh, the fact that we need growth. I'm not a big votary of this argument that there is some sort of a growth versus employment trade-off. There isn't one. Uh, even the uh, informal sector, ultimately depends on growth and the demand coming back. You've got to open up as much of the economy as possible, which of course means that we have to take care of various health-related infrastructure 
as soon as possible, vaccination and all those kinds of things. And we've got to get the economy up and running. You know, there is no amount of schemes is going to, um, you know, compensate for the fact if, say, the restaurants are not open, the hotels are not open, the airlines are not functioning at full tilt. Um, and of course, people and, you know, colleges, hospitals, everything is not functioning at full tilt. <clears throat> Only then you can go back and looking at where the, maybe the so-called trickle down is not happening. And then we can try and fix those areas. But we've got to get this economy up and running and going. Secondly, we've got to persist with supply side measures and continue to open out various um, uh, sectors, which for a variety of reasons continue to be unnecessarily held down by government regulation. Uh, in the last one year, we have done a lot of these things. You saw opening up, for example, of the geospatial and cartography sector. You saw uh, the removal of uh, all kinds of outdated uh, bureaucratic hurdles uh, placed by telecom regulations on the PPO uh, IT, uh, ITES sector, which we removed completely. Uh, and some more uh, uh, changes need to be done uh, uh, on that, and we, we are happy to do that. Um, there may be completely new sectors, for example, like drones that need to be opened up further, um, and maybe completely new sectors we don't know about. But if there are sectors where outdated regulations are getting in the way of innovation and expansion, please let us know. We are very, very opening, open to looking at them and, re, you know, rethinking it from scratch. Right. So Sanjeev, I'll come to the reforms part in a minute, but just one question before that. See, last year you had mentioned on several forums that we need to keep the powder dry because we don't know how long the pandemic is going to be and what is the impact, right? Uh, while other countries like UK were doing very, uh, I mean, large, at least they promised to do large quantity fiscal transfers, uh, direct cash transfers. Some of it has not really worked uh, even for them, uh, as we know in the hindsight. But uh, do you think a, a more uh, loose fiscal policy is now the need of the hour? So, uh, you know, the, the point about keeping the powder dry, powder dry is that ultimately you're going to use it. So if the need requires, we should be willing, and we are willing to do it. Uh, the point when last year when we were in full lockdown and the point I was making is there's no point in ramping up um, demand when the problem was a supply side shutdown. But once we did open up the supply side, we, we were not shy about using the uh, ammunition to ramp up uh, all kinds of spending uh, on infrastructure. In particular, capital expenditure was genuinely ramped up and all kinds of other payments and other things that have been Historically, we have all these kinds of payments in the, pipe, in the government pipeline that are not paid. We sped those up and made sure there was liquidity in the system. And that did have an impact in accelerating the economy. We did announce a fairly aggressive spending uh, plan in the, in, the, in the budget in February, and most people uh, were very pleased with that. Just because we had two months in April and May where things got disrupted doesn't mean that we still don't have... We, we, that, that budget doesn't have to be implemented. We still have to implement it. So we need to get on with it and implement all those things that we said we will do. And, you know, we remain committed to doing all those things. I don't think anybody is coming back and saying that those things should not be done. I think those things remain valid. In fact, they are probably even more valid now that you need a, a boost. So uh, whatever fiscal support this economy needs, we will provide it. And as I said, uh, again, the, keeping the powder dry is only useful if you are uh, uh, willing to use it when it's necessary. And we are willing to use it when it's necessary. 
right okay uh, so sanjeev coming to the reforms bit uh, see last year there was a series of announcements on the atmanirbhar bharat initiative and and a whole host of opening up of sectors and loosening of regulations but it appears that a lot of it is not yet implemented right so or it's taking time to kind of get there uh so how do you see that picture evolving by what time do you think we can reap the full benefits of these reforms so it depends which ones you're talking about some of them have got implemented for example as i said deregulation of the um of this um, of the itbpo sector uh, deregulation of uh, the cartography sector the introduction of bilateral netting uh, all these are you know um, may not sound like grand measures to many people but they are all step by step measures that make big difference when you add them all up similarly you know things like labor laws have got it done um we are um you know we introduced uh, uh, farm reforms which we are committed to they have been held in abeyance because of um you know uh, some political pushback but we remain committed to it and i think even there we are demonstrating that the new system we are have created in terms of direct transfers to uh, the, you know the accounts of farmers etc that works so that if there were suspicions that you know we were removing one system and not replacing with the other not the case the new system has been completely demonstrably been shown to work better so all of this is getting done we also continue to push through uh, 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 various uh, um uh, government expenditure uh, for example um, you know we continue to be pushing along on road building and so on even on the central vista project um, you know uh, the fact is that we continue to do it despite a lot of objections for aesthetic or other reason political reasons that may be there we have continued to push ahead with them and make sure that those things get spent so that that cash flow goes through to the economy the employment comes back so those are the things we have continued with now there are some things that need to be implemented going forward still one of them will be privatization and as i said we are not shy of calling it privatization and not using euphemisms like disinvestment and so on we are committed to privatizing those things that we do not consider to be um you know strategic core strategic areas now there are certain things we will retain in the public sector including for example a significant part of the banking system because you know some part of the banking system and the financial system does need to be in in government control that does not mean that we do not want to you know go out and sell for example um, air india there is no reason for uh, governments to be running hotels and airlines and that kind of thing so even in areas where you know where uh, we intend to retain some government uh, participation even there you know the level of government participation may get diluted down maybe through privatization but also by making it easier for the private sector to grow faster so whatever way the point is being made is that uh, those reforms are in place we continue to push for them and we continue to push for new ones i mean one new one that has come through which uh, is not a, a central government uh, reform but we are encouraging it in the states but in my view has enormous importance is the tenancy act the model tenancy act has been put through i think it's a huge thing uh, you will be amazed the extent to which real estate lies tied up in india uh, which is not being used because people are not uh, willing to rent out their real estate to people because they are too scared uh, my own view in this is that this tenancy act if implemented will you know 
will uh, mobilize huge amount of uh, um, assets in the country and monetize them. So I think there are many things that we continue to be do, and we, there are other things. If you bring it to our notice, we will certainly look at. The idea is to get the creative juices and the animal spirits of the private sector up and running. Right. Uh, Sanjeev, uh, two reforms, which if you can explain this better, because you were personally involved in these and they are quite uh, high impact, but also probably not well appreciated. One on the IT BPO one, which you mentioned uh, on how those regulations changed. And secondly, on the geospatial cartographic reforms. What was the, I mean, what, what is the real benefit to the economy for those two? If you can explain those. Um, okay. So <clears throat> let me start with the second one. You see, people think, don't understand that cartography and geospatial um, uh, sector is an extremely important sector at multiple ways. I mean, you use it every day, right? Uh, Google Maps, or and then there are many, many other uses for it, uh, from urban planning to you know managing uh, uh, insurance for the agriculture sector, managing natural resources, forests and water bodies. There are millions of uses, and of course, then defense and other things. So there are a million different uses for cartography and geospatial data. But interestingly, this sector was essentially, for most part, a government monopoly till very, very recently, um, mostly under the uh, Survey of India. So ironically, even though Google Maps is essentially an Indian invention, by the way, which is invented by the Google offices in India, but it was not done by Indian. Uh, it was done by Indians, but not for an Indian company. And then only rolled out in India almost as an afterthought because we had all these restrictions. And in fact, till a few months ago, technically speaking um, and legally speaking, the operation of Google Maps in India was essentially a gray zone legally because you know it was basically it got rolled out around the world. So we were also using it. But technically, perhaps it was illegal. So why should that be the case? So in order to open this sector out and allow for innovation in India, and by the way, there are many new things which would be possible because you can build it on top of this. For example, large-scale deployment of civilian drones can only be done if you have already got the geospatial backbone. So all of this requires this sector to grow, and we have the capacities to do it clearly since we invented the biggest one. Google Maps, but this has to be done in India for Indian companies, Indian innovators. So we needed to open this up. So just a few months ago, we completely opened this up. Now this sector is basically entirely open. Uh, if there are areas where things are still being a problem, then we are willing to relook at the rules and change them. Same uh, thinking is, was there, by the way, in uh, the case of the IT BPO sector where these were regulated by these very onerous telecom uh, rules, um, including some 1980s ideas about, you know, uh, where EPABX EPA machines had to be placed and so on. These were completely outdated ideas in a world where we are all functioning on the cloud. I mean, how does it matter where the EPABX machine is or is not? You can have rules about where, you know, data is stored and all those kinds of things. That's fair enough. Uh, but why do you care about these kinds of things? So those rules, uh, I think back in November, we opened them up. Um, there are still some niggling issues relating, for example, about you know uh, partitions between international and domestic BPOs and things like that. 
we intend to smoothen those out uh, over time. Uh, but the point is, these kinds of regulations have become very, very onerous in India. And very often they create their own ecosystems <clears throat> in terms of regulation, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, lawyers and accountants and things. And then that ecosystem itself actually uh, gets in the way of making, uh, opening things up. Uh, so, you know, in the end, we have got to be, have the approach that we open these things up, let innovation happen. And very often misuses will also happen. It's okay. But, you know, if we start with the view that misuse will happen and therefore it should all be uh, controlled, then, you know, uh, no innovation is possible. Yeah, right. And especially in the work from home era now with, uh, you know, the, the services economy also potentially can grow uh, because the location doesn't become that much of a constraint. I think this is, this could be quite significant for, especially for the small companies with, with a few offices around the country and so on. So, uh, Sanjeev, one last question uh, on the larger economic picture. We have been talking about a five trillion economy. Uh, we had set a five-year target. I think financial year 2025, 26 was the target for the five trillion mark. How do you see that now uh, with the with, with two years lost to pandemic, at least one year lost and the second year in transit? How do you see that uh, picture evolving? Uh, do, do we shift the date or do we shift the number, headline number that we are chasing? I think $5 trillion economy is very doable for, uh, for India. Sure, there have been some disruptions along the way and that may delay things a bit. But I don't think we'll be delayed as much as people fear. Um, uh, you have to remember that um, through all this disruption, we have continued to do huge uh, changes um, in terms of reforms. Uh, new large capacities are getting built even as we speak um, in completely new sectors. Our export uh, sector is still very competitive. And there are actually, um, you know, new ecosystems, uh, for example, in the vaccine field, etc. that was already there, but now has become even strength, more strengthened. So I think we are in uh, not as bad a position as people make it out to be. Yes, there has been a disruption, but I think our capacity to bounce back is, uh, uh, you know, uh, not as bad as people think. We are, we are quite a resilient economy and our financial system, for example, uh, is not anywhere near as disrupted as people think it is. Um, maybe because we simply weren't as leveraged as many other countries were going into this crisis. So maybe for, so, we, you know, the, the banking system was already significantly being cleaned before we went into this crisis. So, therefore, it was not so leveraged. So, the, 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 uh, so you know, the pileup of NPS has been much smaller than people had feared. And so, our banking system, ironically, is full of cash and is actually capable of expanding as and when uh, this situation, uh, you know, the, the uh, private sector comes back and begins to invest again. So I am quite confident that, you know, when that happens, we will be able to deal with it. Um, similarly, I think, um, you know, as I said, FDI continues to flow in. The key here is to get the health concerns out of the way as soon as possible so that we can throw the whole system open as fast as possible. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, thank you, Sanjeev, so much for your time. This was very insightful and, uh, you know, always great to hear you talk about uh, a buoyant future for the Indian economy. Uh, really appreciate your taking time out for Bharat Vata. Thank you.
नमस्ते थैंक्स